left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. But the first thing on vetting a sponsor is you do want to get to know them, right? You want to understand who they are as an individual. What is their mindset? What is their investing philosophy? So get to know them. Some people love class A beautiful assets, right? And that's what they focus on. Nothing wrong with that. And by the way, I don't have a criticism on any strategy. I'm just giving you the lens. So some operators like beautiful class A assets that they're buying at a three, three and a half cap or something like that. Some people like C-class value-add assets, deep renovations, deep value-add type deals, where it's 50, 60% vacant. They're going to come in for all this money into it. It's going to be a huge upside, right? So you want to understand what's the strategy, what's your philosophy, how do they operate, and then what's your comfort level with that? Are you okay with that? Hey, left fielders, this is Julian McClurkin. When I'm not on the court with the Harlem Globetrotters, I'm the chief storyteller for Tribe Vest. Now, you might be thinking, why would Tribe Vest hire a Globetrotter? <laughs> well, through my travels around the world, I've met so many amazing people and heard their incredible stories. And it's no different at Tribe Vest. My job is to share the stories of people investing together as a group, as a tribe. Tribe Vest allows groups to pool their capital, set up their LLCs and bank accounts, help with operating agreements, funding rounds, and so much more. Whether you're investing with other dads from your kid's preschool class or getting into real estate syndications with people around the country like LFI infielder Brian Pawnell, TribeVest helps them all make it happen. If you want to hear more about stories about TribeVest's customers, just check out TribeVest's YouTube channel. And if you're already ready to start investing as a group, head on over to TribeVest.com today. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. This is Dan Hanford from PassiveInvesting.com, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. I'm really pleased today to have John Kasman with us. He's a real estate entrepreneur who's partnered with busy professionals to invest in over $100 million worth of apartments. He also consults active multifamily investors to help them start or grow their business. He's the host of the Multifamily Insights Podcast and the co-creator of the Midwest Real Estate networking summit. That all sounds awesome. John, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Hey, Jim, thank you for having me today. I'm excited to be here and great to talk to all of your left field investors. Awesome. Awesome. So the first question I always ask is if you could tell us your story, your journey, how did you get into real estate? How did you become an operator? All the good stuff that got you to where you are. Yeah. I mean, the short version is this. I was in corporate America. I worked in marketing and advertising for 15 years. And early in my career, I worked at General Motors, happened to coincide with the time that we went into bankruptcy. So I was there during the layoffs. I watched a lot of my peers, unfortunately, lose their roles. And I think the big thing for me was just recognizing how little control I actually had over my career. No matter how good I was, 
I watched senior executives get shipped from San Francisco to Detroit to Shanghai all in a matter of two years. And I just really started asking myself a lot of questions about, is that what you really want to do for the next 30 years? And the short answer was no. So I started to think about options and I had read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, like a lot of your listeners. And it just kind of came rushing back to me. It was like real estate. Okay, we need to invest in real estate. Challenge was I was still in Detroit and it was like 2009. So I just read everything I could. I educated myself. Eventually I made the decision to move to Chicago and move to the agency side of marketing and bought a two unit. So started with the house hack, lived in one unit, rented out the other unit. That went really well for us. So now I went from kind of an idea that I really believed in, but still an idea to ask for proof of concept. The next thing is we bought a three unit building and that was my first true rental property since I wasn't living in it. And that went really well. And then it was like, all right, now let's see if we can take this to commercial. So I bought an eight unit building and I managed a property management company. And that went fairly well, not quite as well as the other two, because I learned a lot about managing other managers and all that kind of stuff. But it was enough for me to say, okay, now how do I scale? Ultimately, I ended up hiring a coach and a mentor and started really focusing more on larger apartment buildings. And like I said in the bio, we've partnered with other investors to invest in over $100 million worth of apartments. But it wasn't all easy. I think between that eight unit and the next large commercial deal we did, there was a lot of growing pain, a lot of lessons learned, and a lot of things that I think put us in a better position in the long run. But some things I would definitely do differently, particularly since I was a busy professional at that time with two small children, we made a lot of mistakes on what we were doing. That's a great overview. And I have a few questions to dig in there because most people, it seems like, at least when I was in corporate America, when I was dissatisfied with my job, like seeing people get laid off or unhappy, I would maybe try to different industry or change jobs within the industry or even look to change offices within my company. How did you figure out, okay, not only am I going to change industries, but I'm going to try to get out of the corporate world altogether. How did you find the real estate? I mean, I know you read the purple book. I read it. I know it has a huge impact on some people. It didn't hit me until a lot later. So how did you figure out, hey, this is what I want to do, and this is an idea, real estate's where I'm headed? I think first and foremost, you have to be honest with yourself and who you are and what you want. And I've always been entrepreneurial. I've always had big visions and big goals, right? So I think having that mindset was really important. What happened for me is I had time, as crazy as it sounds, but that bankruptcy to take people back, that wasn't like a quick thing. There was I think it was like April 2008 is when things started to become clear that there was an issue. Well, that lasted for a full year. So every day for a year, I went to work with some anxiety of what was going on, what was happening with my peers. There were multiple rounds of layoffs. Once we had the presidential election, you know, and Obama uh, got elected, they brought in the Karzar. Well, what are they going to do? So we went through a lot of analysis of paperwork. They wanted to shut down everything except for two of our brands. So then we had to go through all of that kind of stuff. So this wasn't like a quick decision. And in that process, yes, you're right. I did all those things. I looked at changing jobs. I looked at switching industries. And that's when I realized this wasn't just related to the automotive industry and General Motors, but this was a national economic crisis that was going on. I actually did get one job that I was going to take, but we got caught up on titles. (laughs) I got caught up on the title. They wanted to give me a specific title that was more junior than I thought I should have. And we just couldn't come to terms with it. So I ended up staying there. And that also led me to 
okay, well, is this what you want to fight over over the next 20, 30 years? Titles and salaries and going from here to there and all that. And I'm like, you know what? This just isn't it. Like, we got to figure something else out. So for me, it wasn't a quick, all right, I'm quitting and I'm going into real estate. It was, you know what? I have limited opportunities in this current environment. In Detroit, everything is driven, or at that time, everything was driven by the automotive industry if you wanted to be in advertising and marketing. So that's where the money was. So for me, going to Chicago allowed me to expand into different industries, more diverse client base, more packaged goods, financial services, things like that, while also being a better real estate market for me. So the first step was get into an environment where you can actually put your game plan into motion. And then if it works, now you can continue to grow it and do those things. But the first step was getting to Chicago, which is what we did. And that made it a little bit easier. Yeah. So you got into real estate, you bought a few smaller units and then you bought the eight unit and then you think, hey, I want to keep doing this and I want to grow. And so that's when you think, hey, I need to find a coach or a mentor. And a lot of people are like that. Even passive investors often ask, hey, where can I get a coach or a mentor? So can you talk to us about how do you find a mentor or a coach? How do you vet them to make sure they're right for you before I assume you have to write a pretty big check to have them do that for you? So how do you get to the point where you're comfortable? Like, yeah, this is the person I found him and I want to move forward with him. Well, I'll tell you what I did. It's probably not the best advice for someone else to do, but I'll tell you what I did. So after the eight unit, the pain point I was trying to solve is my wife and I would save our money to buy these real estate deals. We save, 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 find a property, buy a property, save, 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 find a property, buy a property. The eight unit, when we did that, I remember, I think our down payment was like $130,000. I don't think either of us was making $130,000 individually at that time, salary-wise. So the prospect of saving another six figures to go out and buy a property, living below our means, we were already house hacking this property still. We had just had our second child, so our child costs were shooting up through the roof. And I was just kind of dejected. And I remember like feeling like I should be excited. We just added to this portfolio. We got a commercial deal. It's all the stuff I wanted. But then I thought about like, oh man, I got to sit here and try to save another six figures again to buy another property. This is going to take forever. And at that time, a really good friend of mine, she had just went from three units to nine units, from nine units to 90 units in her own portfolio. And I remember saying, what? How would you do that? And I took her to breakfast, fully expecting her to tell me how her great uncle left her like $10 million or something, right? And she said, no, she partnered with other investors. And I was like, wow. And this is the first real person that I've met who raised money and partnered with other people. So that idea was seeded, right? It was planted in my head of, okay, now this is possible. So now you take my pain point of, oh, I don't want to have to save another six figures to go buy a property. Well, you know, you could do it, but she did. And then I met my mentor the next month. And I wasn't seeking a mentor. I didn't go through a list and evaluate people. I didn't have criteria for a mentor. I was looking in a specific market and I was on bigger pockets and I said, Hey, listen, I'm looking at Cincinnati. I want to connect with some people. And they said, Oh, you should talk to this guy. And they tagged him in the post. I reached out to him. He said, Hey, I'd be happy to grab lunch with you. I grabbed lunch when I came into town. And during our conversation, he mentioned that he got started with the mentor and he mentioned that he now mentors people. And I said, Huh, maybe that's a good way to get going. And that's what I did. So he told me what the cost was. I thought it over for about a day or two with my wife. And I uh, thought it was the best plan because for me, the pain was real. And if anyone's looking for mentorship, I think the first thing you have to understand 
is mentors are not magicians. They're not going to solve every problem. And if you're not crystal clear on what you're trying to get out of a mentorship, you may leave that mentorship with disappointment. And for me, it was very clear. I had some experience in real estate. I had some experience investing in multifamily. I wanted to get better at that. But more importantly, I had never raised a dollar from anyone for anything, really. So I didn't know how to structure the deal. I was nervous about talking to investors. I didn't know what to say. Would anybody want to actually invest with me? So I had all of these concerns and fears. And having this mentor who had been down that road, been through that process, that could help at least answer a good chunk of those questions for me. They weren't going to solve it all for me, but they can at least help me navigate and say, well, here's how you structure deals, or here's some options to think about while you're structuring a deal. Here's how I talk to my investors. Here's what I share with them. Here's what I put into a deal package. All of that made it a little bit easier for me. So that's the thing that I started with is clarity on what you want a mentor to help you with. And then you can find people who can do it. I'm not a fan of like just analyzing and analyzing and putting everybody up on a spreadsheet and doing a chart. Like, listen, do you connect with somebody? What is your, I don't want to say gut, but like, do you like them? Do you know them? Do you trust them? Do they have experience doing what it is that you want them to do? Have they helped other people achieve their goals and financial goals that they're looking for? And if so, and there's a clear path for them to help you and you enjoy working with them, you feel like they're the kind of people who will help you get to the next level, then move forward with it. I don't think you need to spend uh, 10 weeks analyzing everybody who's got a program under the moon. Find the program and the person that's right for you and move forward. That sounds so logical and it makes sense, but I think sometimes it's hard to get there because you go to somewhere and you meet some of these gurus or whoever, and they sound like, man, I just got to jump on it right now. And I think one of the keys, and you mentioned it, is, well, a couple of things. One is the mentor is not going to solve all your problems. They're not going to do it for you. But also when you're choosing someone, it has to be someone you know and you like working with, right? You have to have a relationship where you're comfortable with them because if you're uncomfortable with them or you're not sure you like them and you're just trying to get something from them, you're not going to be happy working with them. So I think that's really good advice. And it moves to the next question I wanted to ask you is, so then you started partnering with other operators on deals. So let's talk about that process. How do you then and now screen operators to decide if you want to work with them or not? Yes, great question. So we have two verticals of our business. In one vertical, we are kind of lead operators. We find the deals, we manage the deals. We have strategic partners sometimes who help us with those things. But for all in all, we're on the lead operator side of the table managing that. Those are typically deals in a two-hour radius of where we live here in Cincinnati. So Columbus, Indianapolis, Louisville, Kentucky, those kind of markets are where we're playing. With that said, we also partner with other operators in the Southeast region. So Texas, Georgia, Carolinas, Florida. So we'll partner with other operators who have boots on the ground in those markets. And we didn't start off with that as the goal. Again, I kind of came into this with, you know, you kind of eat what you kill. So we started with raising our own money, whatever money we had, that's what we have for real estate. Then it went to, okay, maybe we can invite other people to join us. The challenge we faced was we couldn't find a deal that penciled when we had to give 50, 60, 70% of the profits to our partners. And that made it harder for us because like, all right, well, even if you do 50-50, well, now the deals we were doing, you got to get really scrutinized the numbers and, well, if I'm going to do this deal, but I'm only going to make $100 a month, is it worth it? Like, you just kind of really have to dig deeper to say, does this deal actually make sense for my real goals? 
And the truth is they didn't. Most of the deals we were looking at, maybe if we factor in more appreciation, they would have, but the way we were analyzing deals, they just didn't. And what happened for us is we had been talking to investors, right? And these are not investors at that time. They're just friends and family that we know. And they were excited about this opportunity, which was great. But with that excitement came expectations. So after about nine months, they're reaching out. Hey, dude, you were telling me about all these great real estate deals. When are you going to bring one to me? And I was like, hey, I'm looking, I'm trying. And I will say that I don't know if it's desperation, but I felt like we were having a hard time. And when you're faced with those pressures, you have a couple of options. One, you quickly just find something and pray it works, which is a terrible idea. Or you open up your approach and you change your approach. And one of the things we changed is we said, you know what? We're not the only people looking at deals. Part of our challenge was the market because I was in Chicago and I wanted to invest in the north side of Chicago. There simply are not a lot of large apartment buildings on the north side of Chicago. So we're focused on more like 20 units or so. And it was just really hard to find those kind of deals. So we started to partner with other people. And in fact, what happened is I launched my podcast, which is now Multifamily Insights. Back then it was called Target Market Insights. And the second guest, my guy, Andrew Campbell, I had him on the show and we're chatting. Andrew and I met at a conference. We had a great relationship, great dinner. My wife met him first actually. I was like, hey, I like this guy. We're gonna do dinner with him. I'm like, what? But we got to know each other really well. So six months later, when I launched my show, I invited him to be one of the early guests. He was guest number two. And when we recorded that episode, we were just chatting and we we're kind of doing like this. And I'm like, yeah, man, looking for deals, having a hard time. He's like, yeah, we're getting close on a couple of deals. And as we were talking, I said, well, you know what? If you're getting close on some deals, keep me in mind, man. I'd love to partner with you. And maybe there's something we can do together because I have these investors now. I'm trying to find some deals to help them. And I'm having a hard time. But if you've got stuff, I know you, I like you, I trust you. I know how you underwrite. We've had these conversations. I've seen your work. Maybe we can do some stuff together. And that ultimately led for us partnering with other operators and growing. So to answer your question directly, when I'm looking at other operators, first of all, I'm going off of my relationship. How well do I know them? I want to make sure I've known them for a while. At least six months is my minimum threshold, probably more like a year now, to be honest with you. But I want to make sure I know them. And what that means is I've had multiple conversations with them. Just touch base, not even about real estate or deal specific, but just what's going on in your life, man? What are you seeing out in the marketplace? How's your family? That kind of stuff, right? I want to get a feel for this individual as a person. Like, who are you as a human being? And then from there, I want to watch how you play. Are you active on social media? Are you sending out deals? And it depends on their role and what they're doing in their business. But I'm kind of watching from afar. Like, am I seeing this person show up every day or does this person just show up every once in a while, right? Are they consistent? Is this somebody who's reliable? Is this someone who is accessible? If I shoot a text message or a phone call or an email, do I get a response? So those are kind of the little nuanced things that I'm checking for. They typically have a deal and I'll typically like to see a deal first and look at it, maybe do some light underwriting, see what kind of questions they have, see what their logic is around their business plan. I don't think I've ever really done anyone's first deal besides the, besides the first deal I did. I don't think I've ever partnered with somebody on their first deal without really a deep relationship. So once I kind of feel good with that and I see how this person is performing and how they're operating, then we may move forward, particularly if it's in a market we like. I talked about the Carolinas, Georgia, Florida, Texas. Well, these are markets we know are on fire. Great population growth, great overall demographics. But for me to try to go and compete in those markets by myself just seems crazy. Like I'm not going to fly out to Florida, to Orlando 
and be able to develop better broker relationships to find that smoking hot deal against the teams who live there, right? Versus the people who are more well capitalized, they've got deeper resources, deeper pockets, deeper relationships. So it doesn't make sense for me to try to do that. I can do that more locally, right? Or regionally in my yard. But for me to shoot out to Florida or Texas and try to do that, it's just not realistic. So we'd rather partner with those groups who are in those markets and identify maybe one group in each market that we really like. And then we kind of focus on our own backyard. Hey, left fielders. This is Julian McClurkin from Tribe Vest. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pfeiffer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy until recently. If I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up Tribe Vest on YouTube. I'll see you there. One of our trusted partners, Ashcroft Capital, is currently accepting accredited investors into their Ashcroft Value Add Fund 2. Why should you invest in multifamily now? Let's talk about the elephant in the room. There's turmoil around the world, and we are in a very high inflationary environment. Naturally, that's a lot to digest, and it's on a lot of people's minds as to what this means for multifamily, or how to interpret this kind of data and reasons to consider when deciding to invest. Ashcroft Capital has compiled a white paper of five reasons to consider investing in multifamily in 2022. To read it and to learn more about investing in multifamily real estate with Ashcroft's AVAF2, visit ashcroftcapital.com slash invest in 2022. That's ashcroftcapital.com slash invest in 2022. How should a passive investor be looking at the same evaluation. And there's a couple of different questions rolled up here is one, how does a passive investor vet a sponsor? I'd love to hear your opinion on that. And then the other thing is when dealing with an operator that is partnering with one or two or even more other operators, Mm -hmm. how does the passive investor vet all of them? When do we look at and say, that's too many cooks in the kitchen? So I know that's a lot of questions there, but can you talk about how to vet sponsors from the passive side? And then when they have multiple partners, how that should change the evaluation. Absolutely. And I wrote an article on this and I'll make sure I send that to you. But the first thing on vetting a sponsor is you do want to get to know them, right? You want to understand who they are as an individual. What is their mindset? What is their investing philosophy? So get to know them. Some people love class A beautiful assets, right? And that's what they focus on. Nothing wrong with that. And by the way, I don't have a criticism on any strategy. I'm just giving you the lens. So some operators like beautiful class A assets that they're buying at a three, three and a half cap or something like that. Some people like C-class value add assets, deep renovations, deep value add type deals, where it's 50, 60% vacant. They're going to come in and pour all this money into it. It's going to be a huge upside, right? So you want to understand what's the strategy, what's your philosophy, how do they operate? And then what's your comfort level with that? Are you okay with that? And I think some people don't really know and they assume because they're passive, maybe they don't care, but then they realize, you know what? I kind of like trophy assets and that's okay. If you want something you want to brag to your friends about and show them, hey, I just invested in this $20 million, beautiful class A apartment building close to downtown. Nothing wrong with that. It's fine. And on the flip side, you might find a deal that's great, but you probably don't want to tell your friends that you're a part owner on that property, right? So I think you have to be realistic with that. We focus on more class B value add deals, but you get the point I'm making there. So I think 
understanding what's their philosophy. Does that align with your own investing philosophy? Get to know them as people, get to know them and their deals, get to know other folks that they've done deals with. So I think it's completely okay to ask for a referral. Can I talk to some of your other investors? I would ask about deals they've done. And one question I tell everyone is it's okay to ask somebody about a deal that didn't work out or even their worst deal because you want to understand who that person is. And when I ask that question as either an LP or a potentially partner with somebody, what I'm trying to understand is how this person talks and thinks about it. I mean, listen, stuff happens, right? Everyone's going to have a deal at some point in your career. You're going to have a deal that just doesn't work out or at least doesn't work out as well as you thought it was going to work out. But what happened? They blame somebody nonstop and all this contractor did, blah, 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 blah. I've had contractors steal from me. It happens. Is it the partner? My partner messed it up. She did this. He did that. Or do they talk about what they could have done better? Do they at least come bring it back around to, you know what? Had this partner do X, Y, Z. This was a bad thing. One thing we've learned from that is how to vet our partners better. So now we make them go through blah, 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 blah. And this is how we saw that. I want to see that you've learned from those mistakes. I want to see that you're improving. I want to see that you are growing as an operator, but more importantly, that you are accountable. I want to know that you're an accountable person and you will take responsibility no matter what happens. Because at the end of the day, that's what I'm banking on, right? I'm banking on you as the operator to figure it out. To answer your other question, you're not going to know everybody. So whoever you're trusting, whether that's the syndicator or co-GP or the lead operator, you're putting your trust in that individual to find the right deals, to find the right operators, to find the right property managers, and to manage that deal for you. So you can't analyze every single thing and every single person who's going to be involved. So you have to trust the person you're going to the dance with that they are doing those things on your behalf. So for me, when I'm a co-GP or partner with somebody, I know my investors are looking at that. So I have to scrutinize those operators in the same way. And I'm only going to partner people who I have confidence in, but also who are going to listen to me and my feedback. Because if I don't feel like I have a say or I can help write the ship or I can give that kind of feedback, then I don't really have value to my investors. So it's got to be something where we're partnering people. We're truly partnering. We're going to help. I've got experience. I'm going to tell you, hey, we tried this. I had this issue at this property. Here's how we fixed it. Or you know what? I think you need to look at a different property management company or whatever the case may be. But you've got to trust that person. And that's why I think that accountability is so key. You've got to find people who you can believe in, who are going to be accountable and who are going to do everything possible to make sure the deal is successful. That makes sense to me, right? So what you end up doing is as a passive investor, your contact person, right? The GP that you're dealing with. And then you need to ask the questions. Who are the other GPs? Who's the lead operator? Who else is working on this? And then you ask your own contact, hey, what do you think of those people? How did you vet them? And just like you do with other parts of the deal, right? As a passive investor, I don't want to start from scratch and underwrite the deal like I'm going to buy it myself. That's what I'm hiring you for, right? So it's similar. You need to underwrite the deal. You need to underwrite the other operators. And then I put my trust in you that you're going to figure all that out. That makes sense to me. So I want to dig in a little bit to deals and the market. And what type of deals are you looking for now? And has that changed over the past year with all the uncertainty in the economy and interest rates and inflation? Are you looking for different things now than you were maybe six months ago? So I wouldn't say different things. I will say that some elements have been really reemphasized. So for instance, we like to find deals that cash flow first. We focus a bit more on cash flow, particularly since we invest in the Midwest. We've never really 
come with the mindset of, oh, we're going to buy this at a three cap and just make this appreciation is going to take us to the holy grail, right? We're just going to hold on for as long as possible and appreciation is going to take us there. That's never been our philosophy, right? We always try to focus on cash flow, make sure we have a sound business plan to control that as much as we can through value add planning. And then we want to exit when it makes sense to exit. So fundamentally, that really hasn't changed and probably won't change. What we have seen is more nuances around what kind of debt structure we're looking at, the hold period. Some of those different factors have certainly come into play. We're involved in a deal right now where it is a different approach to a deal, more of an affordable housing deal. And I don't know if we would have done that a year ago. I've been interested for at least a year and I've been learning about it and I'm going down this path for some time. But I think the current environment makes it even more attractive because it gives me another exit option. So we have multiple exit options. We can do it as a traditional syndication. We can do it as tax credit type deal. So things like that are the kind of things we're looking at is, do I have multiple exits? And really the main question I'm asking on a deal is where's the risk? Can we ride this thing out with cash flow? And again, we're putting in kind of more conservative estimation. So we're increasing our vacancies. We're increasing our delinquency. We're assuming that the market just simply won't be as strong as it was. We're not assuming a 10% growth or anything like that. So if we can do the deal and, and get good cash flow out of that, can we then control the exit on the back end? Can we sell it when the market is advantageous to us? Or do we have to sell in two years or three years? And if we have to sell it in two years or three years, it's probably not going to be a good deal for us. But if it's something that we can cash flow and hold and then sell when it makes sense, that's going to be really attractive. Can you talk about the hold period? Because you mentioned that as one of the factors that might have changed. And you just mentioned it, of course, you're looking for deals, maybe you can hold longer. But what about interest rates or what's changed over the past six months to a year has made you reevaluate the hold period on these assets? Well, I think we've always looked at it with a five-year hold. I think really what's important is while you go into it with maybe a five-year hold projection, what happens if your projection is off? That's my thing is like, okay, if you have to sell in five years, well, then you have to have a great market in five years. And none of us know what the market's going to be in five years. So for me, it's the flexibility in the deal to be able to decide whether that five is actually five or is it three or is it seven or is it eight? So that's really the key is just make sure you have flexibility and options on that exit. If you have that, then I think you can protect yourself as long as, again, you have proper reserves, you are well-financed and all those kind of things. And talk about debt, because that's really changed. A year ago, there were a ton of people doing bridge debt and maybe they had rate caps, maybe they didn't. There's a lot of speculation now that some of those operators could be in trouble because as the rate adjusts, their expenses are going to get out of control. How have you handled that? with your current deals, the deals that you already have underwritten and purchased and are set, how is that going with the debt? Have you had any issues with that? And then how are you looking at new deals and the debt on those deals? Yeah. So I think debt needs to be a function of the deal and the business plan. I don't like to speak in just broad strokes to say bridge debt is bad or whatever. Listen, the deal has to make sense with the business plan and the business plan has to be sound. And the debt is one element of risk. So we've got a couple of different deals that we do have bridge debt. We have some deals where we have kind of permanent financing, agency financing in place. And with the debt deals, you have to be able to create more value. That's the thing with bridge, right? With bridge, you have to have a strong value add story. Otherwise, you could be in a lot of trouble if you haven't been able to increase the NOI 
if cap rates expand, if lenders require more for a down payment, right? Or more when they go to refinance. So those are the things that you have to be mindful of. But on the same note, if you're in a deal like that and the deal works great and you can create a ton of equity, you don't want to have all that locked up for seven years before you can tap into it. The very first syndication deal we did, we did a seven-year agency debt. So it was fixed financing. And what happened, I think the rate was like 5.25 or something like that. And we're a co-GP on that. Well, guess what? Interest rates dropped and people were willing to pay a pretty penny for that property. But we couldn't sell because the prepayment penalty was so high that it didn't make sense to sell for four years. So we had to hold on to that property, even though we could have made a lot of money, even though we could have exited early, we couldn't because the prepayment penalty was too high. So I think you have to take all these things into consideration, right? It's a part of risk. Interest rates can go up, they can go down. But again, if we were in a bridge down that first deal, we would have made more money than we did with our permanent debt because we had to pay the prepayment penalty. So you factor it all in. Again, there's some deals where it makes sense to hold it long-term. And the way we think about it is really simple. What's the business plan? If the business plan and we have strong proof in the marketplace that we can create a ton of value and drive up the NOI, then I'm more open to bridge financing because I feel like we can create that equity and the value and we want to be able to tap into that. If the deal is a great deal, we like it a lot, good cash flow, but it's not like we're going to push rents $300 or $250. It's just kind of more of a solid deal. Then I'd rather have permanent financing because in that case, Maybe I'm making more of that for the long haul. This is going to be a good project to have. And to give you a great example, we bought a 2019 built property in Louisville, Kentucky. It was brand new construction, right? So yes, there's value add, but you're not killing it with the value add at that time, two-year-old property. So for us, assuming kind of the 12-year loan that was in place, 3.21% interest rate, it made a ton of sense for us. We could add a supplemental loan if we absolutely needed it. We can sell and the loan is assumable, but we can stay into this thing for three years, five years, seven, 10 years. We have a lot of option there. But because I knew we couldn't force appreciation that strong, we definitely have a value add play. But again, it wasn't like we were going to go in and renovate all the units and push rents 300 bucks. So for us, it made more sense to play more conservatively. On the flip side of that, we have a townhome project where rents are like, they actually are about $500 below market when we bought it. We thought it was 250 we couldn't even find good comps. We had no idea. We knew it was at least 250 and maybe more, but it's showing now that it's more like 400 to $500 below rent. Well, in that case, we can create a ton of value in a very short period of time. So now you want to have more flexibility on your exit options on a deal like that. So I do think you have to look at it on a deal by deal basis, but truly recognize that debt is another element of risk. And you just have to factor that into your business plan. I want to talk for a minute about communication because that's one of the most important things in an operator for me. And it's not that way for everybody. Everybody's different. But talk to me about communication from your side. Like, What do you think is appropriate communication from an operator to passive investors? And what do you try to do to make sure that you're communicating effectively with your investors? Yeah, that's a great point. I think communication is key and I'm maybe biased on this, but listen, communication is the difference between someone having a good experience and not having a good experience. I think it's easy to believe like, no, it's returns, right? If you give me a 17.5% return and that guy gives me a 15.7% return, then I'm going to like the guy with 17.5. And that's not true. I don't think people really think about it that way. And in fact, when time passes, you're going to forget the return you got on a specific deal. You're going to remember 
who made you feel good, who communicated with you, who was easy to work with, who you enjoyed working with. That's what people tend to remember. In a grander scale, take it outside of real estate, there's a quote that says, people remember how you made them feel. And if you think about it from that standpoint, they don't remember what you say. They may not even remember what you did for them, but they will remember how you made them feel. And that's the thing that we try to strive for when we communicate. We always try to communicate key information on the deal. More importantly, we just try to be accessible. If you've got a question, I want to be able to answer your question. And I will tell you that a mistake I see a lot of people make when they look at investment is they focus so much on experience and so much on what a group has done that they don't focus more on what their relationship and experience is going to be. Because some of those groups that are super experienced and maybe they have hundreds or thousands of investors, they may not have time to cater to you. So if you have a lot of questions, especially if you're a newer investor and you've got 10 questions you want to ask, they may not have time for you. And they'll just tell you this ain't the deal for you and move on. So you want someone who can kind of match your level and grow with you. So if you are a newer investor, you want someone who's going to take the time to break it down and answer those questions and share resources and help you get comfortable. So that's really key. And that's obviously before you get into a deal. And then once you're in a deal, if you got questions on something, you want a response, right? And you want someone who's going to break it down. And we just, for instance, did our distributions for the quarter and we sent out our latest update and an investor reached out and said, hey, was going through everything. I had a question about this, this, and this. And one of them was like our capital expense line item, which was much higher than it had been in the last quarter. And I kind of broke it down and said, oh, hey, well, this was for some unit turns. We replaced the carpet. We did this. We did that. And he's like, yeah, but I was looking at this and thought that was a little different. So, I mean, it took a couple back and forth, right? And I'm like, listen, happy to jump on a call. If it's easy just to talk, here's the answers to your questions. But just text me or call me if you want to hop on a call. It's like, no, 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 I got it. Thank you for the, the feedback. So for me, it's how do I get you the information you need to be informed, to understand how the property is performing, but also so you know that you can sleep at night you knowing we're doing everything we can right. to not just deliver on the property, but to communicate that so we know you're feeling good. And I just think that's key because there's some operators who are good operators, but bad communicators. So you don't oh, know yeah. that they're good operators because in their mind, they're managing a project, but they don't want to talk to you, right? They don't want to talk to the person. They just want to sit there and manage the asset and work with the property management company and deliver the returns. But as an investor, you're sitting there the whole time like, What's going on? And maybe you get your checks, maybe you get your distributions, and maybe you get a one sentence email about the deal, but you really don't have a sense of what's happening at the project. So we always try to paint a picture of like, hey, here's what happened last month. Here's what we're watching. Here's what we're concerned about. And then we do have calls. So for instance, you asked about interest rates and kind of bridge financing. On that deal where we do have bridge financing, we did a webinar. We invited our investors to join if they wanted to know, and we let them know like, hey, Here's how we anticipate this impacting us long-term. We do have a rate cap. Here's where the interest rate could go up to for this year. Here's where it could go up to for next year. And here's how we're reframing our business plan accordingly. So we try to, again, make ourselves available, get in front of those kind of conversations, and just really be the best that we can when it comes to investor relations and, quite frankly, a steward of all of our investors' capital. And I think that's the way to do it, right? Especially for passive investors, you need to match up with someone who is comfortable for you. And I'm not the kind of person that if you're just sending me cash, that's not enough, right? I want to know how the deal's operating. But some people might say, hey, if they're sending me a distributions and it's what it's supposed to be or what I expected, then that's enough. So I think just matching up with someone 
with operators who operate in a way that is comfortable for the passive investor. That's the best way to do that. So that, yeah, that was and, a great insight there. And Jim, to your point, I mean, I have investors who never read my updates. Like you can look and see that they didn't even open up the email, right? And that's fine. It's great, yeah. great for them. I have no problem with that. I have other investors who read every single word and tell me if there was a typo. So we do the best we can to avoid those typos, but sometimes they happen. But that's one of those things where we try to give people enough so they can feel comfortable knowing what's happening. They right. can reach out if they have specific questions. But again, if they're more comfortable, they don't need to look at it like that, then they can do that too. So we just try to make sure that we're doing what we can to help our investors. And that's their choice, right? So if you're the type of operator who doesn't send the reports and only sends the money, then you have all these people who might open that email that are dissatisfied, right? But for you, the people that aren't opening the email, they're satisfied. The people that are and they're digging into it and telling you the typos, they're satisfied too because everyone's getting what they want. So I think that's the kind of operator that I look for. That's a great information there. The last question I always ask is, what is a great podcast that you listen to? And you cannot use multifamily insights. Yeah. That's your podcast. <laughs> That'll be in the show notes anyway. So give us something other than that. Yeah, man. Listen, there are a lot of great podcasts. And I will say this, podcasts are great, particularly when you're starting out on your journey. So I used to listen to a ton of podcasts. What's happened for me is, as I've kind of evolved, my needs from a podcast standpoint have evolved too. So can I make an admission on this show? I don't Absolutely. listen to very many real estate podcasts anymore. I have a ton of friends in the space. So I listen to select episodes or if I see a buddy of mine is on, I want to check out a little bit of that. I watch more video clips and stuff like that, but just like pure yeah. podcast listening, I don't listen to a bunch of real estate podcasts. What I do listen to are business building podcasts, marketing podcasts, other podcasts about leadership, podcast about not so much investor relations, but just like managing relationships and things like that. So mm. one that I absolutely love, it's a very simple, short and sweet podcast. Usually the episodes are five to seven minutes. It's called Marketing School. So Marketing School is a daily podcast with Neil Patel and they just pick a topic. It could be anything from SEO or how this Google change will impact websites, whatever. So they just do that. It's a quick, short podcast. I enjoy listening to it. So Marketing Secrets by Russell Brunson is a great one. The real estate podcasts I do check out still, the syndication show by my man, Whitney Sewell, the Best Ever podcast as well. I like the Online Marketing Made Easy by uh, Amy Porterfield. Mm. Man, there's a lot of good ones. So I think I gave you enough right now. So those are the main ones I listen to. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for that. And then if listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Well, we mentioned a podcast, so definitely check out Multifamily Insights for if you listen to shows. The easiest thing, though, is we put together a sample deal package. So if you are a passive investor and you just want to wrap your head around a deal, especially if you're looking to do your first deal, you can check it out. It's a sample deal. It's a high level deal. It's not a real property. I cobbled it together for some deals I was looking at years ago. But we try to break out all the things you need to understand. Deal structure, terminology, market information, information on the team. So it's a great way to start wrapping your head around it. And then once you download that, you actually get added to our email list. And the cool thing there is I send a follow-up with seven things you need to be looking for in every single deal that you analyze. So you can check that out at kasmancapital.com slash sample deal. And that's a great resource. And from there, you'll find my email address and other ways to connect, me, connect with me directly. Perfect. I will put that in the show notes. And thank you very much for being on the podcast. This was very informative and I appreciate that. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Jim. And I appreciate it. The work you're doing, by the way, with your left field investor community is amazing. I know you recently had your first in-person event. A few guys that I know were up there. So it was great seeing some of those guys post pictures of it. 
And I hope to be able to check you out in person since you're not that far from me. So hopefully I'll be able to check it out in person next time. Absolutely. That sounds great. Look forward to meeting you in person. And that meetup, that was the best part of it, right? Because we have all these relationships now that are the one that we have where we see each other on a video call like this, but we're not in person. And then when you meet in person, it just cements it somehow. So definitely looking forward to that. If you're ever in town, just let me know. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for having me, Jim. Appreciate it. Thank you, John. Got a lot of good mindset type things from this episode with John. He talked about not having control over his career. And no matter how good he was doing in his job, GM was struggling, was going through bankruptcy. They were laying people off. So it didn't matter how good he was. He didn't have control. And what he wanted was to have control over his future. So he turned to real estate. And you have to be honest with who you are and what you want. And that's some of goal setting and other things like that. But really, it took me a long time to figure out what I wanted. And that's why I'm on career number five. And I finally found my passion in uh, passive investing and syndications. But you have to go on the journey. But as you are on that journey, you need to be honest with yourself of where you're going and what you want. And then everyone talks about, oh, I need to find a mentor. And I think John really brought it home. Mentors are not magicians. They need to know what you want. You need to tell them what you want and what you're trying to accomplish and make sure that they're the right mentor to help you with that. And so that's a big part of, you can't just find a mentor because you want to get into real estate, whether it's passive or active. You need to find a mentor who has the skills that they can share with you and the experience that they can share with you. But you need to tell them where you're going and what you want to do. You can't just say, hey, you're my mentor now. Tell me what to do. That does not work. And then to be accountable. That's the most important trait that John was talking about for an operator. And that's a great one, right? Accountable. You need to take responsibility for the good and for the bad. And that's critical. We had a lunch and learn yesterday and the guys on it said, well, they're showing examples of deals. And they actually showed an example of a bad deal, a deal that did not turn out. And I thought that was great because it shows them they're not afraid to take responsibility and learn from their mistakes. And that's the kind of operator I think that you want. And then lastly, you want options. And especially with these uncertain times that we have right now, we don't know where interest rates are going, inflation's going up. You want to have options on the property so that you don't have to sell. So you don't get to the end of a five-year period and the debt options are out. And so you just have to sell or you're stuck with this really high interest rate loan that doesn't work out. So having options is more important now than ever. I really appreciate John being on the show. As I said, I got some great mindset stuff from him. I'm definitely going to follow up with him and get to know him a little bit better and check out his deals and see where it goes from there. That's all we have for this time. We'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication 